Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR 855 on the AM band. And, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy, and we have finally can say welcome back to Stephen Ryan. For yes, I seem to have been away plans. forever, although I haven't been away forever because I was in a few weeks ago when I got back from Italy. I Zoomed in the next yep. morning. Uh, but then, of course, we had the radiothon in the That's middle. That's right. And, and, you know, every, everything's it's been... just the way it worked out. Yeah. So anyhow, I'm glad to be back. It's nice. It's still dark out there when I get up in the morning. So, <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. So you know, the equinox might have happened, but it hasn't shown any great sort of impact Not on yet. the day length yet. But, Not yet. Um, but yesterday was lovely we had all that lovely rain for the last couple of weeks i mean i don't know how many mills i've tipped out of the rain gauge over the last couple of weeks um which has been fantastic we've had puddles and gutters running and you know water around like i haven't seen in ages which has been fantastic so hopefully it's soaked into the ground nicely i might even do a little exploratory dig in the next couple of days under one of my big gum trees and see what's actually yeah, that's got a down good idea. there um and and then we had a lovely day yesterday it was Damn cold in the morning up at Mount Macedon. We got a nice frost and I had a garden consultancy to do at 8am in the morning. Oh, lovely. Up the top of the hill. No. <laughs> yes, it was virtually up where my old family nursery was, right up virtually at the top of the, at least the settled part of the hill because uh, you go into the forest above, only just above where our old property used to be. And so I had to do that yesterday morning and I was writing notes for myself and I think I wrote like a three-year-old. <laughs> It's very hard to keep tabs on it, but it was a lovely day yesterday, and people seemed to be out enjoying the the weather. And I had quite a lot of visitors in the nursery, which was lovely. Oh, that's and, good. You know, pe- people are and people st- need to remember, and I'm sure others will agree with me that you know this time of the year there's bare rooted trees still around in the nurseries. Oh yes. Um, if you're wanting to plant um, trees mm. and things, then it's probably a time that you actually have to get your act together and actually get moving so that you get these things into the ground. Mm. Um, so if you're looking to plant a flowering cherry or a, an elm tree or whatever you're thinking of planting, a nice oak for the future or whatever, um, then now might be a very good time to be going out around the nurseries and having a look and see what they've got. Mm. And, of course, bare-rooted trees are, in general, a little cheaper than buying something potted. Uh, but at some stage, we might even talk about soil preparation and planting of bare-rooted trees because I think a lot of people don't quite understand it. So it may be a topic we should cover. And that ties in with... Uh Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm in Clombernane because, yes. of course, you're dealing with bare-rooted roses at the moment. Yes, uh, Pam, good morning, everybody out there in... in uh, I hope they're all still in bed. <laughs> <laughs> they probably <laughs> are, Graham. <laughs> it's uh, only our silly ones that are out. Yes, good morning, Pam. And, yes, you're right, dealing with bare-rooted roses is a big issue mm. and we've got thousands in the nursery at the moment. I just come back from our grower at uh, Mount Gambier and... Um, He's absolutely flat out, and he's using a lot of backpackers. Mm. He's got a great army of backpackers, and I think his biggest job is organising them and not doing any work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he's a very enthusiastic about it, and he's an amazing fellow, our grower. He's been... He's a second or third generation rose grower from okay. South Australia. So maybe in the blood then. Yes. <laughs> Potentially. Uh, um, he's a great traveller too. He's an interesting guy to talk to. He's about 40, 48. And uh, it was one occasion we had to ring him because we had questions. And we said, where are you, Wags? He said, I'm 15 kilometres from the Tibetan border. Oh. <laughs> I'm and answering bike. your rose questions. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> and he takes a fold-up bike okay. and travels everywhere. And, right. um, 
and he because he was that distance from the Tibetan border, and he had a. It's minus fifteen degrees here at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! So we're competing with him a bit here now, aren't we? With our snow, <laughs> certainly are. And it's been me. great. The rain we're having, isn't it? Oh, All yes. the dams are full, which yes. is really fantastic. Haven't yep. seen that for a long time. No. We've got the Sunday Creek flowing and the platypus are back, which is oh, really good. Yeah, great. Right. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. And where do they go when there's no water in, in, in the creek? They're amazing, aren't they? Maybe they're in somebody's backyard swimming pool waiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've also got to say good morning to Virginia. Haywood, good morning, Virginia. Good morning, Pam. I started the day off yesterday. You were saying it was lovely, Steve, and I was pruning my hydrangeas Uh-oh. in thick fog and mm. couldn't see my bottom paddock. It was very foggy. Very foggy. And then I got a text on my phone. So I opened it up and it was one of my friends in Melbourne saying, oh, we'll come on your walk. It's such a beautiful day. I looked up. I thought, <laughs> no. And of course, it was beautifully sunny in Melbourne. By the mm. time I got down, I did a two o'clock walk and it right. was the most fantastic walk. The Botanic mm. Gardens looked beautiful. I had about 14 people. Oh, good. Yeah. From all over the place. Yep. A bloke from Egypt. Half of them were from Melbourne, which is nice when you get a lot of people from Melbourne. Yeah. Although one couple who were Melbourne pair had only moved from Leeds like a month ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they're not really Melbourne no, yet. No, not yet. <laughs> On the Give way. Give them time. On the way. Mm. But, but it had a lovely walk. And, but it was that contrast, the valley, just thick. Because usually I'm above the fog yes. and I can still see the mountains. But I couldn't even see my bottom paddock. I couldn't see a thing. Right. Which I, could, is, I could see my hydrangeas. Yeah. Sort, it's sort, I quite like the misty weather, though, I have to say. It's got a mm. sort of a romance about it in a garden. I, yeah. uh, I mean, it's something at Mount Macedon that we get a lot, of course, yes. uh, which we didn't get yesterday, but normally we cop it quite heavily there. And to walk around some of our old gardens when they're all shrouded in mist, mm. uh, you know, with those sort of silhouettes of trees poking mm. up through the fog, it's just so beautiful. It is, um, I agree. It makes me realise just how lucky we are living in southern Australia where we have seasons. Yes. Uh, we have a proper winter and we have a proper summer and, you know, so you've got all these seasons that you can enjoy instead of having sort of beautiful one day perfect the next stuff. Mm. Well, they're talking about snow down to 800 feet. This coming mm. Tuesday, I yeah. think, is going mm. to be... Um... Yeah, I don't look forward to that, necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> it makes my life in the nursery quite difficult if we get a dump of snow because you've got to rush around and shake it out of anything that might be brittle. Yes. So you've got to try and protect anything that might smash under the weight of it. Uh, and then you tend to have all the tourists who want to come in and just play on your snow. Right. Mm. And I'd actually be better off closed if we actually get snow down as far as my nursery at the moment because nobody buys plants in the snow. What height is your nursery? Uh, it's just a little under a 1,000. Oh, it's about 800 metres, I suppose. So you'll yep. probably get it. Well, we could, although mm-hmm. it's funny. In, at Macedon, you tend to get the snow on the north of the mount when we get a dump more than mm. you do on the south of the mount where we are. Um, so you can get snow right down into Wood End, mm. uh, but it'll actually just be a few flakes fall on our side of the mount. So it has to be a fairly serious snowfall for us to get heavy snow on the south of the mount. Uh, it doesn't. Well, it certainly hasn't happened much in uh, in my adult years. Uh, as a kid, we used to get it regularly, mm. uh, but it's changed substantially. Mm. Uh, well, when I was a child, I remember it snowed in, well, do I remember or do I just have it as, but it snowed when I was four. Yes. Do you remember things at yes. four or is it something or is you it were just told? Something and I've you've... been told always, yeah. but that was the only time in my whole, until I left, which was mm. 75. Mm. And in the 12 years I've been in several, it snowed twice, but it's never sat on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it's still pretty exciting when it comes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it comes on those mountains just past me a lot. Yes. 
Yes, well, our place, we used to, uh, virtually every year we'd get heavy enough dumps where we couldn't get out from our driveway, which as a child was fantastic if it was a school day. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it, was, and it was, wasn't so good if it wasn't because uh, it was a waste of a good dump of snow because you didn't have to worry about not going to school. And, uh, yeah, so we used to get it quite regularly. And probably the best year I ever remember, I would have been 10. And we had dump after dump over about a fortnight with frosts in between. And uh, the water supply reservoir up on the top of Mount Masseton froze right over. Uh, and I actually went barefoot ice skating on it. Oh! Much to my mother's horror when I got home and told her what I'd been doing. Oh, I bet. <laughs> uh, and it was. It was really thick ice on the okay. top of this reservoir. And, yeah. uh, and there were icicles hanging from the trees. It, it was very festive looking. I still remember it very, very well. And the snow was probably a good two feet deep and crunchy because we'd had all of the, uh, the frosts in between which had held it on the ground. Yeah. Uh, but I've never seen a year like that since. And I don't know when the previous one was because I was mm. too young to have lived through another mm. one. But mm. yeah, so we can get it, but we haven't for years. But the, the weather really has changed because, mm. I mean, when, when I was um, going to high school, we used to get such thick pea soup at fogs that um, the trains couldn't run and, mm. and we also would get out of um, going to school because we couldn't, there was no way of getting there. So we'd, we'd, be, we'd stand on the station until, you know, it was declared no trains are going to be coming yeah, and through. Then go home. <laughs> and then we'd walk home again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always liked missing the bus that way too yeah. uh, when I was doing high school. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't happen anymore. No, no. And, and yet our trains seem to keep breaking down and, and service t- seems to go kafut every time we get a weather event. Yes. Which I don't remember that happening when we were... Kids. No, things no. seem to function there. No, it was, on, it was only the fog that that mm. stopped them running yeah. because they it used to be so thick it was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah isn't it amazing? Yeah. Anyway, I must get to some community oh, announcements. Yes. What's happening? Ah, things are things are happening. Um, would you believe? Now today, for a start, uh, the Maribyrnong Orchid Society have got their winter show on. Uh, this is in the Maribyrnong Community Centre in Randall Street, Maribyrnong. So it's inside. So why not go along? <laughs> Um, 9am to 4 o'clock and entry cost is $5 for that one. And Pam, feedback about that show every year is it's absolutely delightful. Well, well there worth, you go. Well worth going to. Well, if you haven't got anything planned today, that's a good one. Now, also, um, let me see. Coming up, of course, uh, also today, we have um, our friends at uh, the Rose Society of Victoria are still doing their uh free rose pruning demonstrations. Now, today they are at Mornington Botanical Rose Gardens, which is on the corner of Mornington, Tyab and Dunn's Road uh, in Mornington there. Uh, they're at 11am and again at 2pm and bring your own secateurs. Now, next Saturday, they'll be out at Wilson Botanic Gardens, which is on Prince's Highway in Berwick. Again, 11am and this time 1.30pm, and again, bring your own secateurs for some hands-on pruning of that one. Now, also uh, coming up, Werribee Park Heritage Orchard um, have got their winter grafting on again. Now, people I know love these grafting days because the, there is so much happening. Now, this is coming up on Sunday the 17th of July, so that's Sunday of next week. 10 a.m. through to 3 p.m. Uh, now, there's a lot happening on the day. Um, there's going to be 
Orchard tours, there's plants for sale, perennials and herbs propagated from Werribee Mansion Gardens, plus citrus from Grevillea Nursery. There's going to be displays from other local plant and garden groups, food and drink for sale, books for sale, a chance to explore the dramatic vegetable gardens created by the local Burmese Karen community, Werribee's sculpture walk to wander through, um, and then, of course, uh, you're right next to Shadowfax Winery with a big open fire if you want to uh, warm up. Now, uh, entry is free. Um, you don't have to book. There'll be grafting displays uh, going on right throughout the day. Um, and they say that uh, consider your garden and its size, the soil and climate, and choose a variety of fruit tree that you would like to grow if size is an issue, think about growing cordons, espaliers, or growing in pots. There'll be hundreds of varieties of apple, pear, so it pays to do some research before you come. Um, they'll try to, to make as many as possible available on the day. Now, you can also uh, come along to the grafting day and buy the scion wood of your chosen variety, plus a rootstock to graft it onto. Uh, then uh, the folk out there will graft it for you or you can watch a demonstration and try to graft it yourself at home or if you have a favorite apple tree in a neighbor's or relative's garden uh, they will graft you a new version of this one all you have to do is cut off some scion wood pencil thickness from the original and store it in a ziploc bag add a few drops of water or wrapped in damp paper in the fridge bring it along on july 17th and get it grafted onto some rootstock or again Buy some root stock and try it for yourself. Now, they're going to charge $20 per grafted tree or $4 for scion wood to take home. And uh, multi-grafts are more complex, so they start at $30. So all of that is happening down at the grafting day. Um, as I mentioned, it's Sunday the 17th of July, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Now, you follow the signs to Gate 5. This is down at Werribee Park Heritage Orchard, of course. And you turn left when you reach Shadowfax Winery. You drive around the edge of the polo fields and park under the cypress trees behind the old homestead. And you'll see the marquees over by the old stable. So a really good day. And, Sounds fabulous. And, and really a, good. a proper way to learn how to how to graft. If you, you, you can't do that out of a book. I don't care can't. what anybody no, says. You, you need really to need be it. shown. Yes, if exactly. You, if you want to learn how to graft and bud, you need to have somebody actually show you how to yep, do it. Yep, yep. Um, Although people to experiment, <laughs> and it's a it's a wonderful way of getting some some heirloom varieties oh, yeah. of fruit trees. Mm, you know, mm. it really is, and and the fact that they will even allow you to bring your own scion wood from a, a neighbour's or a, mm. a relative's yeah, tree you may that well you have want. A, yeah, you may well have a really good tree available to you, but you don't know what it is. But it's a good fruit tree. Yep, uh, and so you yes, obviously you want to keep those going. Yeah, so that's so great. it's 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 a brilliant service. So um, well worth supporting. Uh, now, there's just uh, one more that I should – oh, no, two more that I'll mention. Uh, the next one is uh, the next talk being given um, down at Royal Botanic Gardens in Cranbourne, um, being held in the Australian Garden Auditorium. This is coming up for Sunday the 31st of July, 2 o'clock through till 3.30 p.m. And this is a, a talk – um, it's actually the Elizabeth Murdoch Scholarship presentation. Now, it's a talk by Sturt Gibbs and Trevor Seppings, who are Botanic Gardens staff down at Cranbourne, and they were recipients of the Elizabeth Murdoch Scholarship. And uh, that scholarship um, 
took them on a road trip, um, uh, an exploratory trip to South Australia that went as far as Port Augusta. And the trip's main aim was to provide them with personal and professional development opportunities, as well as learning and collecting as much information as they could about natural and cultivated South Australian landscapes and their horticultural potential. So um, they're going to be, as I say, speaking about that. Uh, Sunday, 31st of July, 2 o'clock to 3.30. Cost for friends of the uh, Botanic Gardens Cranbourne uh, uh, members there, $15 for um, non-members, $20, students, $10. And uh, you need to make a booking uh, to go along to that. So if you'd like further information, you can phone 8774-2483. That's 8774-2483. All right, and the last one, uh, this is one for the diaries. It's coming up on Saturday the 6th of August, and we've been talking about um, pruning fruit trees. Friends of Burnley Gardens are presenting Pruning and the Art of Espalier Workshop again with Chris England. Um, Chris is an absolute whiz at Espalia. And uh, he'll be doing it, running another workshop uh, for the Friends of Burnley Gardens. Saturday, 6th of August, 10 a.m. through to 1 p.m. Uh, the venue is the nursery at Burnley Campus. Uh, you do need to wear closed shoes for health and safety requirements and BYO clean secateurs. Now, all plant materials will be supplied, including a bare-rooted fruit tree, uh, which has a value of $30. Bookings are essential. Uh, the phone number there is 9035-6815 or you can email friends.burnley at gmail.com. Costs, members $84, non-members $99. That includes morning tea and uh, you do need to pay in advance by cheque or EFT. You can get all the details from the Friends group and I'll just give out that number again, 9035-6815. Okay, it's high time we opened up our talkback lines to listeners. If you've got a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. I also must say a big thank you to all those people who supported the Gardening Show Radiothon this year. If you made a pledge and you haven't sent in uh your cheque or that money, um, we do need the monies to come in as quickly as possible. Um, if you uh, gain some product or some books uh, during Radiothon, you need to come in uh, during office hours during the week and uh, a member of staff will help you with all of that and find uh, your particular product. And we do have some product left over. We have lots and lots of product out in the courtyard. We need to clear um, all sorts of fertilisers and goodies for the, the soil, for your garden. We also have um, a lot of vouchers. We have plenty more books. We have um, still one uh, Ewood raised garden bed and also $100 off a wicking bed uh, kit. Um, and we also have subscriptions to Earth Garden magazine and to ABC Organic Gardener magazine and their annual subscriptions. So uh, if you haven't donated uh, because you're away on the weekend of Radiothon uh, but you'd like to support uh, the gardening show in particular but 3CR as well in general, 
in general because this is our only major fundraiser from the year to meet our running costs. Do think about giving uh, the station a call uh, during office hours and they can uh, they can tell you all that's available and find something that you would like. And to ring office hours, 94198377. Stephen, while we're waiting for some calls, let's yeah. get started. Oh, God, I don't know where to start. Lots I've of actually, goodies. Yeah, I bought a lot of plants in today. I don't know why I had a rush of blood. Oh, Virginia's pointing at one she wants me to talk about. She so wants let's, it. Yeah, let, let's start with <laughs> that I one. I love that plant. Yeah. This is a little – and I've, I've had it in the studio before, I'm sure, but anyhow, it's one of those plants that should be uh, pushed back at people on a regular basis. Uh, it's one of the perennial nasturtions, Tropiolum tricolorum. Um, and uh, the nasturtion genus, the tropiolums, all come from South America. And some of them are annuals, um, uh, some are herbaceous perennials. And this particular one is a herbaceous perennial one that has a woody tuber underneath it to which it dies down in the summer. So it likes to be kept dry in summer. So that sounds like it's easy here, but it's not always. No. You know, I mean, we get a summer storm and, and soil will get damp uh, and it can rot these out. And in fact, there, I don't remember which year it was, but sometime in the last few years, we had a very wet summer, sometime three or four years ago, maybe. Um, and I had a lot of this growing through a hedge and it was sort of growing all the way along the hedge. It was a, an Escalonia hedge, so it was really dark green. Oh, that would have been wonderful. And I lost a lot of it. Yeah. because it just rotted out in the ground, even though the Escalonia's roots were there helping to dry up the soil and all that sort of stuff. It's re-establishing itself gently, but the best way to look after it is to keep it in a pot. And when it dies down, you can then take the tubers out or you can move the pot into the veranda or the shed or whatever and keep it dry. As soon as you get your first warm days in the spring, it'll collapse, and it'll almost do it overnight. Okay. So it's it, it can be a bit shocking to the uninitiated because it just suddenly disappears. Um, and as long as the tubers are kept dry till about the end of February, early March, and they'll actually start to shoot even if they're in a basket or a box in the shed, so they don't even need to be in soil and they'll actually start to move. Um, and then you pot them up again into fresh potting mix with a little bit of slow-release fertiliser. And depending on the pot size, they can get up to three or four metres high in one growing season. I've got a polystyrene box that I put about 10 tubers in that sits outside my office door, and it runs up the silver vein creeper that's there, which is dormant and bare at this time of the year. And I get this lovely, fresh sort of uh, It's a very green, green isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a really lovely green. In fact, I do get a few people who say, oh, is that some sort of sticky weed? Mm. <laughs> Uh, and they're just starting to flower now. They sort of flower from sort of mid to late winter right through until the warmer weather sets in and makes them uh, go dormant. And they have these I, – I always describe the flowers as looking like those old-fashioned wooden spinning tops. So they've got sort of a, a point at one end, so they've got a spur behind them, and the spur in most of the flowers is a bright orangey red, uh, and around the mouth of the flower, which never opens up fully, it has a black ring and it's sort of yellowy-green inside. So tricolour meaning three colours. And there's a couple, there's a couple, isn't there, that are quite similar? Oh, yeah, there's other species, but the trouble with most of the, well, there's one species that's almost weedy, and I hesitate to sell it, Ciliatum, which is summer growing and yellow flowered, oh. and it runs everywhere. And so you've got to be sure you like the plant before you put it in. And then this one's reasonably easy as long as you keep the tubers dry in the summer, but most of the others are quite hard to keep. Uh, I keep losing the blue one. Uh, it will grow from seed, flower, dies back, I get tubers, and then I struggle to get them to break dormancy and they just rot away. Um, and uh, the only other one that's comparatively easy, there's one called pentaphylla, which has green and pink flowers, which is rather lovely. Uh, and in fact, 
I don't know how many people out there are Twitter addicts, but I do follow Twitter. And somebody tweeted a photograph of a tropiolum quite recently, which I have never seen. And he didn't say which species it was. And I've not seen it in any books or anything that had green flowers with blue inside. And the leaves were marbled like a cyclamen. Oh, and it was exquisite. Oh, and I oh. tweeted back and said, looks fantastic. Where can I get it and what is it? <laughs> but I haven't heard back, so I don't know whether they paid attention of my retweet. Um, but it's an interesting genus. I've and found it – I've lost it several times. Yeah. I, I think that if you're – I'm not – a well-organised person. You need a diary entry. Nobody ever accused me of being obsessive, I have to say. (laughs) And so I'm not good at... And every time I've put them out in the garden, they've gone. Even if I've put them somewhere, I think they'll be as dry as dry. Yeah, yeah. It can be difficult to keep them in the garden, I have to say. So a pot is the best thing. And yet you see them all over Scotland. Scotland. No, but that's the other one. Ah, it's the other one. That's Tropiolum speciosum, which is a summer-growing, summer-flowering scarlet one, right. which is also quite difficult to keep in cultivation here because it likes deep, loamy soils uh, with constant moisture without being wet. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that's the one called Tropiolum speciosum, the and flame it creeper. probably doesn't like 40 degrees. You don't no, get 40 degrees in Scotland. No, no, it doesn't. In fact, its roots need to be down in the shade and the plant itself needs to get up into the light, otherwise it won't flower. So it's that sort of clematis thing again where you've got shady, cool roots but yep. you need to get the top into the light. But as you say, it doesn't want 40 degrees either. Mm. So speciosum can be quite difficult to grow, but because tricolorum grows through the winter months, as long as you're aware of its summer dormancy requirements, it's actually quite easy, really. Um, okay, I'll try again. Yeah, I think you should, Virginia. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think it's a wonderful plant. Uh, it always creates comment when it's in flower. And it's interesting because when you really think about it, there's not a huge number of – well, there's a few native plants, but not many red-flowered winter exotics. Um, you know, there's lots of pinks and there's lots of whites and red camellias. Yeah, but even the camellias, their reds are sort of blue reds. They're not sort of scarlet reds. Very blue reds. And yeah, that has got a touch of orange. Yeah, it's, yes, it's, it it's a very warm red. Yeah, it is. And Beautiful. against the bright green of the foliage, it's a great combination. Mm. So I think it's a plant well worth growing. I spend a lot of time explaining it to people because if people want a climber, they normally want something to cover the shed. And yeah. when you tell them that this thing dies down and comes up again each year and so being herbaceous, they can't quite see the point of it. But the point of it really is the fact that you can use it up other things that are not in season. Mm. So you get double value out of a space. Mm. So mine, I grow it up other climbers. I grow them in pots on triangles or, you know, sort of wigwams of bamboo canes and, and they make this fabulous thing of just flowers. One year I grew it up through uh, a canary bird road. Mm. which was a fantastic combination because the little yellow rose was in flower mm. before this finished and it had these sort of long arching spiky stems and the tropiolum ran along the stems of the rose uh, and so I had the little red and black flowers of the tropiolum with these lovely single yellow flowers of the canary bird rose. It was great. Well, I think there's a real point to small climbers. The acerina yeah. is another one. It's, yeah. Mine is out at the moment. Absolutely beautiful blue bells yeah. Yeah. just well, when, floating through my bed. Yeah. When you think about it, climbers tend tend to be rambunctious things that can take over Mm. and so there's a lot of control required Mm. but a herbaceous perennial climber almost controls itself and so yes for restricted spaces or for growing over another plant that you don't want to swamp um, and the acerina and like that you don't have to worry about it you put it in the ground and leave it and it's absolutely unless you live at Macedon because it's frost tender (laughs) 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 so I can't grow the acerina terribly well but I can grow the tropiolum superbly Uh, well well, I'd recommend that you use a canary bird rose Stephen because it will stand the test of time it is as tough as old boots now there's a question though Graham 
Yes. Can you still buy canary birds? Yes, you can. Good, because yeah. I think it's one of the ch- most charming little early yeah. flowered roses with these gorgeous sort of buttercup-like yellow flowers, yeah. and it has that nice sort of archy habit, mm-hmm. so it's not stiff and heavy, mm-hmm. and it's got very pretty, dainty little leaves. Yes, Everybody note, we see Stephen saying something nice about a rose. I, look, I can. <laughs> only, I, ca- only canary bird. Though. No, no, no. I, 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 I like Rosa Glauca as well, um, but for much the same reasons. Uh, but... Some of those little species roses are actually quite a different beast to a classical garden rose. Yes. They and, are. And you use them in different ways and uh, and they're, I have to say, bulkier plants, so you need to give them a little bit of space and mm. you don't prune them like you would a conventional rose. Uh, but there's just something really, particularly with canary bird, because it comes out so early and it's such a cheery shade of mm. yellow um, that you always smile when you see it in flower because it's just such a pretty little thing. Mm. And I've actually had people ask me what it is. How so long does a lot it of people flower? don't recognise it as a rose. How long does it flower? Well, it's a once flower, but it has mm. a reasonably long flowering period because not yeah. all the buds come out at once. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to think how long mine normally flowers for. It probably, I'd probably get a month and a half, two months mm-hmm. out of it. Yeah, up to six weeks. Yeah, yeah I would have yeah. thought. Um, uh, but it is quite a big bulky bush, so you do need to allow it a little bit of space to show itself off well. But, uh, yeah, I, I think canary bird's a charmer. I love it. And the leaves are a real feature too. Yep. It's a really lovely green and very soft and feathery. And does Mm. it have good hips? Uh, I've never really noticed particular hips on canary bird, unfortunately, because I do like a good rose hip, I have Mm. to say. Uh, But, yes, it doesn't seem to do that. But, yeah, there you go. I'm spouting roses here this morning. (laughs) um, Don't say any more, Stephen. No, no. Otherwise, I'll ruin my my record this morning. I'm sure I will. So Tropiolum tricolorum, which is a climbing nasturtium. and because you can eat the normal nasturtium, I have tried it, but there seems to be no flavour to it at all, so probably Forget not it. worth growing for eating. Okay. <laughs> and a bit fiddly anyway to pick. Uh, but it's a great plant. Lovely, okay. lovely thing. Yep, um, Now, I do want to talk about snowdrops this morning. I've done this before, but I think we should do it again. And I'm talking about true snowdrops. Yes. Uh, the European snowdrop, not the thing we have in our gardens, which we should be calling snowflakes, which are the taller ones with the white bell with the green spots on each of the six petals. The true snowflakes have three big petals that stick out and three little petals in the middle that tend to be green spotted. Now, mm. So they're Steven, like helicopter propellers. They have character, don't they? They are the cutest flower. little things. Yeah. Uh, now, they're nearly all green and white, so you don't necessarily need 500 different varieties, although there's plenty of English people who think you do mm. because there's people in England that collect them and call themselves galanthophiles. Uh, <laughs> and will pay £50 pounds or for a more. Mm. Or right? more. Yeah, really? Some of the new cultivars, you know, yeah. you breed a new galanthus that's unique looking and you can get huge amounts of money for it and in fact there's been quite a lot of galanthus theft going on in England over the last few years where people's serious collections have been targeted by thieves and they've been stealing their best galanthuses which is frightening Mm. Um, or is it galanthi oh don't start me on that one um (laughs) But this one here is uh, Galanthus acariae, which is one of the Middle Eastern ones, and its main claim to fame is that it's green-leafed instead of grey-leafed, and it has quite a good-sized flower for the height of the plant. So it's Mm -hmm. a comparatively short plant with quite a good-sized flower, and it multiplies quite well. I had a client in actually yesterday who was... Uh, like a pig in the proverbial when they saw how many different galanthuses I was selling. And they've been growing them in Melbourne gardens for some years now, and he said they're clumping up nicely, flowering well. So you don't need a really seriously winter chill to bring them into flower. Okay. You just need to plant them somewhere where you remember where they are because I think small bulbs' biggest enemy is you. Mm. Yeah, the you're fork. More, yeah, you stick the garden fork through them or you plant something on top of them when they're dormant because you've forgotten they're there. Mm. So you need to be... 
aware of where your galanthus are. And the other one I brought along is is a hybrid one. It hasn't quite opened. I thought it might in the in the light in here, but it's a double one called Lavinia, and it has a little double green flower inside, almost like oh, a little yes. formal double camellia. Uh, and, I mean, because the flowers mm. hang over, you've got to lift them up to look. Uh, uh, it's one of the hybrids that were produced by Mr. Greater X in, in England. It's one of the Greater X hybrids. Uh, and he named them after Shakespearean characters. So there's Lavinia, there's Cordelia, there's Desdemona. Uh, there's all those <laughs> fabulous names. I don't know whether he ran out of names and then stopped. <laughs> but I do find his doubles all rather similar. So if I don't keep them properly labelled, I can't tell which is Desdemona and which is Lavinia. Uh, uh, but they are lovely snowdrops and these gorgeous little double yellow flower uh, double green flowers inside make them really interesting to sort of lift up and look into when you're pretending that you're a lily putting sort of lying on the ground and looking at your tiny bulbs uh, so i think the the galanthus are well worth considering um and they are such dainty little things mm. and they do clump up quite nicely so they and don't what, take too long what conditions do they need deciduous shade so Pop them under a rose bush. Ooh, there you go, another uh, rose. So there's another rose thing happening here. I'm getting all warm and fuzzy about You're getting, roses. You're getting morning. excited, yeah. Stephen. <laughs> they only need some summer shade, really. So it doesn't need to be a woodland. Uh, it can just be a small deciduous tree. You know, if you've got a weeping Japanese maple in the garden, that would be another good place for them. But somewhere where they get some winter light, because their flowers open up best when there's plenty of light on them, otherwise they stay semi-closed. Um, and so they need that winter light, and it also gives them a chance to feed their bulbs and things with some sunlight and what have you. And then they don't mind how shady it goes when they go into dormancy in the in the summer. And unlike the tropiolum, if you're watering the garden during the summer, as long as it's not sitting in soggy ground, they don't mind if there's a little bit of summer irrigation or what have you. Um, so, yeah, so as long as you keep the fork away from them, they're quite easy little bulbs. And I guess the only other odd thing with galanthus, and some people dispute this, but I find that they move better if you're going to lift them and pot them or lift them and divide them when they're still growing. And like most bulbs that you wait till they go dormant. Mm. Uh, so if I'm lifting and selling them, I lift them when the noses are up out of the ground and I pot them straight away. So these are almost bare-rooted galanthuses sitting in these little pots here. Uh, and it also gives me the advantage that I can feel if there's a flower bud in the, in the galanthus I'm going to pot because, you know, some of the babier bulbs won't. Mm. And so I can actually feel the ones that are going to flower, so I pot those as opposed to any that are under-flowering size, and I just put those back into the garden again. Yep. Yep. Uh, if I was doing it in my own garden, I'd probably do it straight after the flowers had finished mm. and lift them and spread them if I'm going to fiddle with them and the big advantage of that is of course they're easy to find when they're active mm. uh so you're less likely to stick a fork through the bulbs yep so that's the main thing with galanthus and in in europe uh, particularly in england you often see them advertised as in the green so as in you're buying them as active bulbs so they don't send them out as dormant bulbs as much but there's some growers in england that are disputing that now but i've never had a problem doing it in the green so i stick with it being the concern i like the I phrase in the green yes, yes. In the green. yes it's it's quite good it's it's nearly as interesting as Brexit and other strange <laughs> English terms that have come into our lexicon of late. Um, so, um, yes, we're making up new words all the time, aren't we? It's amazing. You know, I recently went slack packing <laughs> because my luggage was being moved from one place to the next, so I was a slack packer. Uh, I haven't been glamping I've, lately. I've been glamping. Oh, you've been glamping, have you? <laughs> I love all those words. And what's glamping? That's being glamorous when you're camping. So having all of the mod cons around oh, you while really? you're camping. So that's glamping. It's luxury. luxury yeah, luxury camping. camping. I'd say being a rotten little capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, instead of roughing it as the rest of us should, yes. Oh, dear. So anyhow, Galanthus. So that's that's my, my sort of take on snowdrops at the 
moment. Okay. And if you want to see them, they're in flower now. I've got lovely drifts of them in bloom at the nursery at the moment. So it's a good way to see them growing in a garden habitat to see how you could use them yourself mm-hmm. um, they go well with the little cyclamens they you know there's all sorts of other small bulbs they do well with and aren't the cyclamens just beautiful oh. Absolutely. Well, they're another plant I just I just drool over. I, I, you, you're using the wrong te- terminology. The Australian word is cyclamen. <laughs> Only for the colour. <laughs> uh, I'll still stick with cyclamen. Actually, I don't know whether I've ever told this story, but people do worry about pronunciations, and, and I can understand why, because, you know, you feel a dill if you pronounce something. You know, if you call your gazanias gazanias and somebody actually points out that they're probably gazanias, um, you can feel a little inadequate. A gazania. Uh, yeah, I've had people ask for pun. To Gazaneers. Um, <laughs> and uh, I do remember the Cyclamen Cyclamen thing. Uh, there was a very, very well known brother and sister team up in the Dandenongs called the Gordons who knew more than any of us will ever learn about alpines and small bulbs and things. Uh, and um, Philip Gordon was a very tall, very frightening man uh, with no sense of humour. Mm-hmm. And at one of the Alpine Garden Society meetings, I think one of the very first ones I went to up at Fernie Creek, uh, he got up and he said, I've been doing a little research on this cyclamen cyclamen thing. And we all know, of course, it comes from the Greek uh, for a circle because they pull their seeds down in little whirly giggy things. Um, and the Greek word is kukul. So we probably should be saying kuklamen. And <laughs> I nearly wet my Myself, uh, and and me being me and can't shut up, I leapt up from the back of the audience and said, Philip, that's fantastic. The next time I'm bicookling past, I'll look at your collection. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't get a laugh out of him, but the rest of the audience <laughs> fell, around, fell about. So, you know, pronunciations are one of those things. Uh, uh, Latin is a written language. It's not a spoken one. And so, and there's lots of letters in it that don't exist in the old Latin um, language anyway. So if a, an ancient Roman came back today, he wouldn't be able to tell you what a, uh, or pronounce a Mahon or a galanthus or any of those things probably because there's letters in a lot of those words that didn't exist in the in the Latin yep. alphabet. Mm. Yep. So, yeah, you do your best. And exactly. Give some people something to laugh about if it doesn't work. We must go to a couple of our callers. First up, we have Anne in Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Oh, good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, I'm early bed as usual. Well done, Anne. <laughs> yes. Um, in Oak Park, dear, I've got... Uh, very good quality. It's probably uh, best described as semi-clay, but it needs a little bit of um, freeing up. And what I need to know is, uh, if I'm landscaping my whole backyard, would I be better off getting a vehicle in and digging it up and putting the gypsum down now, or just Putting small amounts of gypsum where it's needed. Well, I have a love-hate relationship with gypsum, I have to say. Uh, The quality of some of the gypsum being sold now is not crash hot because it's getting less and less, you know, it's a finite resource in a way. Uh, And some clay soils it doesn't work in. Mm. So you need to know that it works in your clay soil first before you bother using it. And the point of gypsum is to break up a clay soil so that you can then turn it over and put other things in. It doesn't stay there. It leaches away. Mm. So it might break up a clay soil and and get it to uh, flocculate its colloidals uh, into nice little sort of lumpy things so that you get better drainage, but it will disappear. So really the only purpose of gypsum is to make the soil looser and more open so that you can then incorporate some more permanent things that will keep the soil loose and open. So if you're prepared to 
circumvent the gypsum thing and just dig over your clay soil and get other materials in like humus, animal manure, uh, and even some coarse sand or gravel, which mm. will help to sort of keep a, a clay soil open. Um, you're not throwing money at gypsum that's going to leach away anyway. Uh, and so my gut feeling is if the soil's workable at all, um, I would probably not bother putting down the gypsum. Any sort of organic material, and and look, I've I've been on this bandwagon. Anything, sheep poo, Mm. cow poo, horse manure that you buy in bags on the side of the road, well rotted, loosened hay. Um, The more diversity you can dig in, Anne, the better your soil will be. Because it's going to add different nutrients, different trace elements, different minerals, uh, and different sized particles to the ground. So no. it's like you, you don't want the same meal every day. No, that's um, very good advice from you people, much appreciated. But I'd like to know, just before I go, a little bit about landscaping. I intend to do the entire backyard and parts of the front. Now I want trees and shrubs in the back. There are some there, but not much. And I want a water fountain. Uh, I want one, a large one, like about three tiers with the water coming up and, yeah. and flowing Yeah, sort of a cascade thing, yep. So I'd put that in first, wouldn't I? You'd put all your hard structures in first, yes. Yeah. So paths, water features, fencing, uh, any of your the... Irrigation, your, your irrigation, your systems, uh, drainage, all of those things... All the infrastructure should go in before you really start your planting. Right. So, and if you're going to go into something like a serious pond, I would get a professional in to deal with it. Um, I was just going to say, uh, I would need help from a professional landscaper. Where could I find a good one in the northwestern suburbs, do you? I don't know anybody specifically in that area that I would recommend as a landscape designer. Uh, look, there may well be people out there in, in our listening audience that have contacts with people who are good. Maybe we'll get somebody who will ring in for us. Um, I would certainly check people's um, accreditation, make sure that they're you know qualified landscape gardeners because there's some people who put a barrow in a ute and call themselves landscape gardeners and you can't always be sure that you're going to get a decent job from some of those people. And I guess in a sense, Anne, you get what you pay for. So, you know, the cheapest quote isn't always going to be the best finished result. Um, so you need to be a little careful that you don't sort of have a fit of economy and, and end up with a really bad landscape job. So you need to get somebody who's going to do the job well. And you need to – they're like having an interior designer. You need to be on the same wavelength as them because you don't want somebody to impose something upon you. You want somebody to understand what you need and want from your garden and make that a reality. So yeah. you need to talk to people and see who's going to do the job well. Can you have a look on the net? Can you ask it for landscape designers in northwest Melbourne? Uh, no, I haven't got the uh, computer, but I was thinking you... maybe the yellow pages. Try or... the yellow pages. Yeah. The other one would be to go to your library and ask them to help you look on the computer. Go the to the library. library. Yeah. They, they will help you. Yeah, well, libraries are a great source. Sometimes have landscapes, as you say, I would need to be very careful. Oh, look, you can waste a lot of money, Anne, if you get the wrong person. So you need to be confident that you've got somebody who isn't ripping you off but who is being fair with their prices and is on the same wavelength as you so that you end up with the garden you would like. And if you went to that, what's the name of that fantastic nursery in Essendon? 
They po- probably Poynton's. Poynton's. If you went to Poynton's, they'd probably have yeah. They a may list have a landscape designer that mm. they would recommend to you. That's a good idea, oh, actually, Virginia. Right. Yeah. Oh well, this is just coming up in the future. I won't be doing everything all at once. I've got to uh, finish writing and selling my first poetry book. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, if you're going to do that, and especially yeah. if you're going to do it in dribs and drabs, you also need to be confident the person you're working with is happy to, you know, come back again and again and continue the job. Right. Okay, then. Well, thank you so much for that. A very invaluable advice, as usual. Well, that's and, good, Anne. Uh, and have a great uh, life, everybody in there, and so will I. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye, Anne. We're going next to uh, Tim, who's out in Reservoir. Good morning, Tim. Yeah, good morning. Good morning, everyone there. Um, this is sort of a bit of a bad gardening question. I want to know how to get rid of something as opposed to grow it. Right. Well, there's always getting rid of stuff in gardening, Tim. It's, uh, I mean, we, we're weeding the whole time, so there is this removal thing is part of gardening. Yeah, I don't mind the weeding. It's, um, we've got a house and we've inherited a massive cotton ester with the red berries. Yeah, um, yes. And it doesn't matter. We've cut it back oh, as far as possible that we can, but it just still keeps suckering up everywhere. And it and will. It will. Oh. I've got one that the birds have just planted for me. Yeah, well, isn't that sweet of them? Uh, it's yeah. a weedy plant. Uh, we shouldn't be growing most of Well, it's a big genus, so not all of them are going to be weedy, but the vast majority of the big shrubby cotoneasters have weed potential here, so we probably shouldn't be growing them if we can avoid it. And unfortunately, there's only two ways of getting rid of it. One is to dig the whole base of the plant out, so you've got to get it out more or less roots and all. You don't have to get the very last fibery roots right. way out at the end, but you have to dig underneath it and lift the whole thing out, Or and I'll offend a few people here, poison it. It's the only other way of getting rid of it. Know, Cut. That's what we were thinking, because it, it's... The width of it's easy, a couple of metres. It's yeah. um, been there, oh, I reckon, for probably at least 20 years. Yeah, you'd yeah. need a backhoe probably yeah. to get it out. <laughs> Digging it out by hand would be a monstrous task. And so the simplest way to get rid of it is to use the glyphosate poison, but what you do is when the plant is in active growth, so don't do it now, but when okay. the cotoneaster is growing vigorously, snip the stems off, and as you snip them, paint them with the neat glyphosate. And okay. so just a dip, dip, tip on the end of the each branch to cover the, the top of the, the cut. And you do it as soon as you cut it because the sap is moving fast. It sucks the poison down into the trunk and will kill the whole plant. And then no over worries. years it will rot away. <laughs> it won't happen overnight, so it'll take quite a oh, long time. We've already for... got plans for what we're going to put there, okay. Uh, yeah, well, you, you might, might have to put them on hold. <laughs> unless you dig the stump out, I think your plans will have to wait. Okay, and where can you get the poison from? Well, it's just the normal Roundup sort of stuff. But you oh, use, any nursery. But you just use the okay. neat product and you dab okay. it on the end of each cut when you, as soon as you make the cut. No yes. worries. So, so don't, don't do the spray. whole, yeah, don't spray and don't use the, don't cut the whole plant first. Cut and paint as you go. No worries. We'll and do that. And so, that normally kills most things I've had to try and eradicate that way. But yes, you still then end up living with a dead stump for quite a long time. Okay, well, we'll make it a garden feature then for a while. Yes, yes, it could be. You could have a stumpery. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much for that. Have a good day. If you're using the the glyphosate, make sure you've got some good uh, waterproof gloves on. Oh, don't worry, uh, I will. Just take care with it. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Yes, don't treat okay. it like water. No. So no, you, you no. do have to be careful with, well, with any spray or thing you're using in the garden, even things that are vaguely organic, you still don't want to inhale them and, no. uh, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, people say, oh, well, I make all my own spray out of garlic and rhubarb leaves and God knows what else. You could still poison yourself with all that sort of stuff too if you're not <laughs> yeah, careful. Yeah, but, but in this case, I wouldn't be spraying at all. No, As I wouldn't As you spray said, you get the neat. Just dab it. Neat. Just dab and it. And dab it with a brush. Yeah. That way it's very okay. controlled and it's very directed. Yes. So that you're using Fantastic. just the one spot. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much. All right. Good luck. Yes. Thank best you. of luck Bye. with that, Catoni Aster. <laughs> they are a beggar oh. of a tree. I mean, there are some really pretty ones, and there's some quite good Catoni Asters, like there are good in lots of big genera. But yep. the classical sort of Serotinas, and, uh, and I can't remember the names of most of the weedy ones now. It's so long since I've had anything well, to I do with them. Well, I just noticed that one's just planted itself yeah. in my garden. Yeah. Then mm. they do. Not happy, Jan. No, well, but get it out while it's young. Yes. Then yes. you can get it out. Mm. You can actually dig it. But, yes, when you end up with something like poor Tim with a you know sort of two-metre-wide... Mm cluster of stems, Mm. uh, that's a bit of a nightmare to get rid of. Absolutely. That number, if you'd like to join us this morning and ask a gardening question, 94190155. That's 94190155. Graham, I believe you're running some pruning demos next Saturday up at the nursery. Next Saturday. Yep. And if people can't get there, uh, we'll run them. Saturday and Sunday for the next two week, three weeks. Okay. And but they'll need to ring us first to say they're coming. Sure. And I can just give them a, a, a short walk around the garden, and we'll um, do some pruning while we while we're doing that. Okay. No, that okay. sounds good. So that phone number? Uh, well, it's five seven eight seven one one two three. Five seven eight seven one one two three. Yes. Not yes. a bad number. That's a good no. number. Yeah, yes. 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 that's quite nice good. and easy. Oh, to we remember. have some good numbers at our place, <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully and, a good rose or two as well. And if you come up the Hume Freeway, the turn off is Clonbanane. Mm. Clonbanane. Right, and it's yeah, that's well not quite so easy. No, Kilmore was much easier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Never mind. Now you've also brought in a rose this morning. Yes, Pam, I brought in a new relief. A new release, and it's a red rose, and it's called With All My Heart. Oh, dear, they're pandering to a certain group of yes. the population, aren't they, yes. with that name? <laughs> so it'll go very well on Valentine's Day, but it's also a rose that's got a beautiful red tight bud. Right. And um, it comes up very well in, in displays, and um, it's part of um, what Diana calls her, her gift line. And yes. she's sending, sending a lot of these all interstate 12 months of the year. Right. So she's a revolutionary girl. <laughs> and we, they're being packed in, in um, bare-rooted at the moment, and we're selling them in pots through the year, and they're in a coconut fibre potting mix that we've got specially made. Okay. Mm. And you're happy with that? That's working well? Yeah, it's going well. Mm. It, it holds the moisture in the, in the mail. And sometimes the mail takes a little longer than we would hope. Uh, yes. Um, it's a little more so these days than it once did. Mm. Yes. Um, and uh, this, is, this is a new rose this year. Now, okay. you, you haven't mentioned perfume, though, Graham. It has what would probably be called a light perfume. Yeah, so it's not one of the really, really intense yeah. ones. Um, and, and it's interesting, over the 30 years we've been growing roses, red roses are still the most popular. Yeah. And, are of course, they? oh, yes, yeah, they've retained their popularity all over those years. Things come and go. We'll go through pinks and oranges. Oranges are very popular. But red roses, darker red roses, have 
always been very popular. Mm. When was the orange ones popular? Back in the seventies, when we had those canisters with the with the brown lids. <laughs> no, I think orange is recent, isn't it? Yeah, when I think it is. People suddenly discovered that years. you could put orange and purple together. Mm. And, you know, because you really, I think over the last 10, 15 years, you've really noticed a lot of orange roses. Mm. Because suddenly there's been a lot of interest in planting um, what they call hot, Hot borders, colours, yeah. hot colours. Yeah, yeah, instead so of the, the pales and pastels. The dahlias, all your those big, mm. bright, bold colours in your mm. dahlias and things, and, mm. and they've really come on into their own. And yes. I, th- I think that's partly because our sun is so hot, our light is so strong that you need hard colours to actually see oh, them in the summertime. Pastels disappear. Don't they? they do. They really do. They disappear. Fabulous at this time of year. Yeah, yeah. And when or when you do have an yeah. overcast day, they yeah, stand out. More yeah. gentle light. At the moment, I've got a lot of white out in my garden at the moment, and the white just looks fabulous. Mm. But that same white in summertime just disappears. You yeah, might as well not even look at it. Yeah. And, and the white contrasting against a green background, that's why the white iceberg has always been so popular. Mm. Yeah, because and, it has a good rich green foliage yes. that shows the flower off quite yes. well. Mm. Mm. For a rather poor rose, for, in my opinion, but there you go. Mm. <laughs> Does this, um, is this a, a, a charity rose? No, it's actually not. Okay. One of very few. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be how they come the out now. Yes. Ten years. Yes. yes. It's actually re- released by a nursery in Western Australia. Okay. And um, uh, this fellow's um, been releasing some different roses. He's also got a really good orange rose this year. Right. And oranges have, uh, as we've been saying, will hold up really well in the hot weather. Mm. Yep. And people like that as a feature. Um, if people go to the rose gardens, the state rose gardens in Werribee, orange is the thing that really stands out. There's mm. some magnificent uh, different varieties of orange. Mm. Mm. I love the orange ones. Mm-hmm. I think mm. they're wonderful. I think orange is a great colour. Mm. Yes. Um, and yellow. I love yellow roses. Yellow is actually quite a difficult colour in the garden. Mm-hmm. You know, if you find you've got a lovely pink camellia and suddenly up oh, yes. come yellow. The daffodils yeah, underneath the wrong it. wrong daffodil, <laughs> yes. Or the jonquils, the yeah. yellow with the orange in oh. it. Oh, it's shocking. Yeah, yeah. Some people quite like that, though. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how many people do. They like uh, to be shocked. Yeah, yes. or like the Prunus bleriana flowering with the wattle. Mm. And you see that quite a bit. You know, somebody's wattle's hanging over the fence and the street trees are bleriana plum. So you've got that lolly pink and that bright yellow of the wattle. Mm. It sort of mm. grates on me, I have to say, but mm. some people seem to think it's lovely. So mm. good luck to them, I guess. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But on roses, I discovered amazing program on Foxtel the other day Mm. and they were saying on this program, I'll go back to the program in a minute, but they were saying that, talking about new release roses and they have estimated that something like 80% of the old roses of Britain have disappeared, just gone. gone. And it made me think of us, Stephen, Mm. of, of Plant Trust trying to preserve the Garden Plant Conservation Association that both Stephen and I are involved in. This program mm. could have been made by Garden Plant Conservation. It, is, it just looks at a couple of genus and yeah. talks about plants that have been unpopular and that have disappeared, disappeared. in the garden. Yeah. It's the most amazing program. Yeah. I can't it's, remember its name. It's sad how we are losing plant diversity. And, I mean, roses are actually a very good example of why because they're br- producing so many new ones all the time. Yeah. No nursery can keep up, and they certainly can't keep all their old ones going no. and still have the new releases. I mean, you mm. must have dropped a lot of roses over the years, oh, yeah. Graham, that you, you well, don't stop. But, I mean, some just don't perform well, yeah. let's face it. They, well, there's they, that, they, but there's some good that. performers that just disappear because people yep. lose interest, which is sad. Yep. Well, the, the real contrast to that is that roses that come in from overseas to Australia 
they go through South Africa to get around the quarantine requirements and they go to Ludwig Tetchener's Rose Garden um, and he has about 300 in his display area and he's openly said now, anything that's got black spot or mildew, he said, I just pull it straight out and go through the chipper. That won't get released. Right. And from a rose growth point of view, that's great. Yeah. That's really great because we're really not going to get diseased plants in the future. Yeah. Because they'd have a climate not dissimilar where he is to yes. what we're dealing with here. So yeah. if they show any disease or, or weakness problems... Yes. They're gone. They would, they, they would be the same here. So, yes, you better not to even get them mm. in the first place, mm. which is good. I mean, I think, I, don't, I think sometimes we release things just for the novelty sake of it yes. because we've got to have the new release all the time mm. and instead of people really assessing whether a plant is an improvement on what's out there, mm. um, either with colour or disease resistance or sturdiness or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, plant new varieties need to be better, not mm. just another. I think it's, it's particularly important with the, the change in, in our climate. Mm. Yes. Climate. And especially for Australia, we've got to get plants that will withstand dry and drought. Mm. Mm. And that applies to natives as well. Mm. Yeah. If they're no good, get rid of them. I'm sorry. Mm. Mm. Yes, well, it's my old thing about who wants a garden full of hospital cases. Yes. Uh, you know, you want plants to be flourishing. That's yes. what your garden's yes. meant to be all about. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so this rose is available now. Yes. And it's... With all my heart, which I find just a tiny bit wince-making, but oh, there you it's go. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm sure lots of people will love that as a gift. But it might be idea. beautiful, even yeah. if it's got a horrible name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some people do need to think about the names they give plants to. Good plants stay around, like the iceberg rose. That wasn't iceberg originally, was it? It was something else. It had a German name or something way back. Schwiechenberger or something. Yeah, so, like something like that. My German's so, not real good. Yeah. Well, neither's mine. <laughs> um, and so some smart aleck who realised that the rose was never going to sell, particularly in Western countries, with a Germanic name that nobody can pronounce, mm. called it Iceberg. Mm. Now, I mean, that's a fantastically clever name. Particularly because, for a white flower. Yeah, and, and it says it all. It mm. does tell you it's white. I mean, probably the world's best-selling rhododendron is Pink Pearl. Mm. Yes. It's a dreadful rhododendron, but it's got a bloody good name <laughs> uh, because people can remember it, it sticks in their head, and it yeah. says something about the plant. It tells you it's a pink flowering one. Whereas Faggot's favourite, which is a far better pink, will probably never sell all that well. <laughs> <laughs> that program just did half of it was on rhododendrons. Yeah, it just went through all sorts of rhododendrons mm. that uh, that have been threatened, that have disappeared. Oh yeah, and was particularly looking at Cornwall, where they um, where the Lost Garden. Oh yes, where they've got a lot of those old cultivars and still going. And the old ones are there because mm. it was just ignored for years. So because that garden's been revived, they found a whole lot of mm. rhododendrons that they thought had disappeared. Yeah. The trouble with that, though, is is IDing them. Uh, If there'd been a cultivar that was bred, you know, say in the 1890s or something, it is very, very hard to ID them. I mean, I have that issue at Mount Nasset, and we've got lots of big old rhododendrons there. Some of the old cultivars have been in cultivation up until comparatively recently, so there are people who know what they are. But there's a heap of mainly magenta puce and screaming cerise, uh, because that was the sort of colours you could get. Um, Most of those we can't ID. We've got no idea what they are, and it's sort of sad because, you know, they're there, and you know they're an old cultivar, you know they date right back, but nobody alive knows what they are. Yes. So you can't sort of then say, well, that's rhododendron 
whatever. I mean, I've even got some old catalogues from the 1890s of the Sangster and Taylor nursery that was selling a lot of those rhododendrons at the time. But you go through their catalogue and, you know, they say, you know, Cerise. And you go, well, all right, well, there's 10 different Cerise ones out there. Is it that one? Yes. Uh, and you don't know and you can't tell. Yes. So it's a bit sad. It is. So, yeah. um, no, I agree. Yeah, so it'd be nice to be able to ID some of those old cultivars. But you're right, though, in some senses, Pam, a lot of those cultivars, you know, they don't work in modern times for lots of reasons. Uh, certainly with rhododendrons, some of them grow far too big. Huge. Uh, you know, so you've got this humongous big thing that grows to, you know, five or six metres. Oh, they're monstrous. You know, yeah. and you think, well, it, it probably has no context in a, in a modern smaller garden. Uh, most of us don't have the grand estate anymore uh, <laughs> with five gardeners. And, but they do still have them in England. Yeah. Oh, yes, they do still have them oh, in yes, England. Oh, yes, they have them in uh, France. <laughs> and there's, look, there's one or two up on Mount Macedon too where those sorts of plants could grow and do, but you wouldn't propagate them to sell them out again because mm. there's just not enough people who'd want that sort of thing. I mean, and rhododendrons are a great case in point. If you're breeding rhododendrons, it takes you 10 to 15 years to flower them from seed. Then you've got to cull your seedlings and work out which ones are going to be potentially any good. You then need to grow them on for several years afterwards to make sure that they've got vigour and that they've got the, and the colour is stable um, and the foliage is good. So you have to start when you're 15. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and also that they're propagatable. See, a lot of the amateur breeders in England bred a lot of magnificent rhododendrons that had to be grafted mm. because they just wouldn't grow on their own roots. You couldn't mm. get them to strike from cuttings. Mm. And in this day and age, people won't graft rhododendrons because it's time-consuming and you've got to charge more for them. And yeah. also... For us, so few of us have actually got gardens that are appropriate for... I mean, well, not, it's not our gardens, actually, is it? So few of us are high enough to provide yeah. the cool. Yeah, yep. exactly. And, you know, if the climate is going to keep going the way it, it would seem to be, then rhododendrons, apart from the varia group, which are the ones that come from the high lands in the tropics, uh, which I think will always be growable in our climate given the right aspects in their garden. But the Himalayan and the cool climate rhododendrons, it's really only up in the Dandenongs and at Mount Macedon and places like that where we can grow them well. Mm. Uh, people struggle with them in town and you think, well, why are you doing that? You know? I've, I've got one in my garden which predates me and there's not many plants in my garden that predate me. I had a lot of protea. Mm. The last one fell over the other day. <laughs> <laughs> they have a tendency to do that in time. Just boom, straight yeah. across the driveway. Mm. And it was 10 foot high yeah so that was fun to get rid of but um the rhododendron somebody planted it years and years ago on the driveway it faces both north and west mm. which means that it goes through every summer mm. burnt yes. yeah it looks lovely for the three weeks it's in flower yeah, and the rest the... of the time at some stage i will pull it out because yeah it's yep. just yep yes if it's burnt like that for all year round i mean it's not actually adding anything to the garden, is it? No, and particularly as the garden seems to be getting hotter and there are more hot north winds and it hates mm. the north wind. Yeah. It's mm. going to have to go. It's sad, but it will have to go. I can't stage. believe you've lost all those proteas. Yes. You had so many. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and and it was the beginning of uh, the beginning of the end was the end of the drought. Right. And that very yeah. wet yeah. Um, summer you talked about, I lost a few then. And this one, when it fell over, it was rotten. Yeah. yeah. And it was just rotten. I wish I had made a recording for people that year of the wet because mm. everybody had been planting with the drought in mind. So they'd planted everything succulents. down. Succulents. Yeah, they planted succulents <laughs> yes. and they planted things down into little hollows to catch any amount of water that did come. Yes. And I had people who were drowning cottonus. I had people who drowned flowering cherries. I had people who drowned so many different things. I reckon more people lost plants during that wet summer yes. than they lost through the whole 12 or 14 years of drought. That summer I pushed over a, a uh, what 
huge pine tree. I pushed it over with a drot and dropped mm. it into the paddock, took the fence down first, and then we burnt it. The CFA gave us permission to burn it in February. Mm. That's how wet it was because mm. yeah. it took... It took about a week and a half to burn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm. so it was a remarkable season. So we, we actually have to – people forget, you know, the global warming uh, as it sets in isn't going to be just always drier. It's actually going to be extremes, extremes. of wet. Extremes, that's yeah. right. So we will get more wet at certain times. We and will. We will get more dry and we'll get more heat. And, you know, so it's going to be, you know, in every different direction. So we, we've got to actually allow for both yeah. extremes. And the other thing we're getting is a lot – heavier falls of rain in summer when they come you know mm-hmm. they, they come with tropical force yes yeah, yeah so yeah so we get drowned which mm. is if if you're clever like they've done at the botanic gardens and they rescue the water from the streets around and send it into a bed of canners where the water can be cleaned you know if you're clever about capturing that water you can mm. do really well however most of us smaller people can't be quite that clever. No, no. we don't have the infrastructure to be, or the money to be that clever sometimes, because sometimes some of those things take a lot of effort, which often translates into money. Yeah. You know, so. effort and and knowledge. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Engineering. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yes, and I didn't become a gardener to be an engineer. No, <laughs> that's what I say to people when they when they find out I've got a bookkeeper. I say I didn't become a nurseryman to become an accountant either. No. <laughs> you know, so you get other people to do that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Tell the tax department that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look at the book we have to do now compared to 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Oh, well, that's, that's why I got a bookkeeper. You, you'd experience that too, Pam. Totally. Oh, oh yes. The, the surgery must be a nightmare trying it to is. keep up with the paperwork. It is. Yeah. Mm. Now, Stephen, I have a plant that I was wondering if you grow. Uh-oh. Aranthemum. Aranth- Blue sage. No. No, I've got it in my garden Hmm. and I got Meg over to confirm that what it was. was, yes. And I've grown quite a bit of it. It's got a lovely blue flower um, and I don't know, like the other one I had, I don't know where I got it from. Yeah. Um, But it props really easily and I was wondering if you have it, but you don't. No, it's not a plant I have. Do you think it would be cold hardy enough for me? Well, don't know. That's always the issue because, you know, a lot of – the things I've tried in sort of salvia groups and, you know, the plectranthuses, uh, brilliantasia is not looking all that brilliant. Uh, My brilliantasia is looking... Good. Cold. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. No, it's not looking good. Yeah, well, the cuttings I struck are looking all right, but the stock plant is looking decidedly frowsy. Um, but They've just know, planted that in the Botanic Gardens. I was walking through the Botanic Gardens the other day and just with a whole group of people, I just stopped dead yeah. at this bed that had just been done over and was actually very boring because everything in it was small. Mm. But there were two brilliant tasias. Yeah, and if anybody <laughs> doesn't know it, its name is somewhat appropriate because it's the most brilliant shade of blue yes. and it's a, a perennial that sort of... Well, it sort of looks a bit like a salvia on steroids or something. Yes, it's sort it's of a very big flower that looks like a salvia, but yeah. it's too big. Yeah, yes, and it's uh, it's a wonderful plant for comparatively frost-free environments, mm. and it grows like fury when you plant it. I mean, if it's happy where you put it in, you can get a sort of meter and a half, two meter plant in the one growing season. So, if you're an impatient gardener, it could be actually quite a useful thing. To oh, have. it's a beautiful thing. Yes, yeah. I hope. And I had a look at it yesterday in the gardens. It doesn't look very good in the gardens, and the no, gardens it, is well warmer than. Oh, yes. Seville, although Seville's warmer With than where I am, exactly. Yeah. So, yes, my poor little brilliantasias are all huddled in the igloo at the moment, and it's not a heated igloo, so it just keeps the frost off but them. But Meg grows it yeah. in Gruyere. 
So I presume we'll continue with it. We'll get, get oh, yeah, through. Oh, yeah, yeah. And look, it's one of those plants that once you get into the habit of growing it, because it grows so fast, you can do what the poms do. If it's something that's that's frost tender, you treat it as an annual. Mm. So you prop some cuttings of it in the autumn before it... Uh, the main plant gets wiped out by the frost and you huddle them in the greenhouse or on the sunny veranda or somewhere where you can keep them going through the winter months and as soon as the frosts are over you whack them in the garden and then within a few months you've got this huge show of flowers Mm. well well, i'll give you one of these aranthemum yeah to try because it is it is lovely it's i for some reason i've fallen in love with a canthaceae it's a canthaceae yeah and it's got a quite a big fleshy leaf mm. um, which says to me it wants to be in a shade or just morning sun. Yeah. Well, oh, I'd love to have a go at it. Count Facey? Aranthemum is yeah. its name. Blue sage, they call it. Blue but sage. it's not a but sage. It's not a it's sage. In it's, in the, sage. The, it's in the acanthus it's, family. It's mm-hmm. definitely an acanthus. Yes, mm. acanthus. The can, acanthus family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a huge family with all sorts of fabulous plants in it. And there's wonderful plants yeah. in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And most of them you wouldn't, you know, if, you, if all you know is the old bear's breeches, the old acanthus mollus, a lot of these plants you wouldn't even pick as being related. Mm. You know, they're, they're so diverse and interesting. Mm. Um, and there's some really good garden plants. And some absolutely beautiful flowers. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so they're, they're well worth looking out for, folks. Mm. Mm. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, in the studio this morning, we've got Stephen Ryan, Virginia Haywood and Graham Sargent. If you'd like to ask a gardening question, we're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. We'd love to hear from you, 94190155. That's 94190155. Virginia, you've brought in a whole lot of different uh, bits and pieces too. Well, my garden at the moment, I walked around it the other day with my camera and thought, oh, I'll just photograph, because of the time of year, I'll photograph what's in flower. I photographed something like 25 different salvias mm. that mm. were in flower. Right. And lots of grevilleas. Yeah. And, of course, now all the bulbs are coming up. My first daffodils are out. Yeah. And I have a lot of different, um, just a lot of different daffodils. I've got, uh, some are very early and have been out for a while. Very soon the ixias are going to be out. And the blue ixias I just adore. So the garden's really looking quite exciting. And I've got two very large flowered um, salvias here. This pink one, I... I have to say the the summer flower does seem I mean the winter flower does seem to be very pink. My garden is very full of pink at the moment. Oh, how this, feminine. Quite. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them are very very over the top pinks. Oh, well, but this that's is good. this one is pink icicles and I've propped this and put it all through the garden and it's got such a big flower. It is very very lovely. Hmm. But this little one, the cestrum, I don't know which one it is and it was given to me by a friend many years ago. It's now sort of above waist height and quite a little bush. And it's a very deep, deep sort of purpley flower, pinky purple flower. Small but very beautiful and the birds like it. Mm. And a lot of the cestrum are actually quite weedy. But this one, I wouldn't mind if it just reproduced itself once or twice. Yes, so it, it hasn't, hasn't done anything. Done that. That. No. Yeah, there's that red one. I think it's called cestrum... Newly or yes, something, that's it. and that's become quite weedy up in the Dandenongs, and mm. so there's there's mm. quite a thing about trying to get rid of cestrums up there. Uh, and I have to say, the night scented one I find a rather boring shrub, even though the flowers smell nice at night. The cestrum nocturnum, um, mm. but yeah, I should know what the name of that one is. And it's I've got a funny feeling it starts with a P. 
something like paraguensis or something like that. I keep thinking about it ever since you showed it to me first thing this morning. It'll probably pop into my head about 10 minutes after I leave this morning. Probably. And this deep, deep pink one is Timboon. And the Mm. reason it's called Timboon is because it turned up in a garden in Timboon to start with. So it's one that turned Mm. up first in Australia. How how big do they get, Virginia? The Timboon is, oh, six foot. Oh, yeah. And it's... And it's quite um, quite a nice strong bush. The the pink icicles is a bit all over the place. Yeah. But the timboon. So I've got timboons that are in flower, and you can see them from hundreds. Yeah, because it's, it's of almost yards away. A, it's almost a magenta or yes. a, a puce or something. It's a really strong colour, and the calyx is a darker again. So the whole flower from a distance looks really quite sumptuous and rich. Yes. Uh, and. It's one of the few winter salvias that is coping quite well in my garden. Right. Uh, I've tried a lot of different ones and they just frost out. Right. Uh, I did have involucrata bethelii for a few years, yes, but then that slowly yes. faded away when mm. we had some really heavy frost. Mm. But I got that Tim Boone one from Meg when we had that party at her place for Christmas. Oh, yes. Year, uh, Christmas before last. And it is flourished. Uh, the only thing is in my garden there's a prevailing wind that comes through near where it is and so it's all leaning one way. way yes. <laughs> yeah, so, but it's, it's survived surprisingly well. I've been very pleased with it. Well, I've also got its parent, which is Karwinskii, yeah. which is a much um, one of its parents, obviously. Yeah. Everybody has two. Uh, which is a much smokier, pinker colour. Yeah. Again, the same sort of big and and a good strong bush. I mean, yeah. because they look as a bush, you get a lot of flowers mm. and they're noticeable. But I think the thing with the Timboon is it's such a striking colour. It is. It's a lovely colour. Mm. And mm. It, it, I wouldn't say it was pink. You know, it's sort of such a dark colour. Yes, it's, it's a, it is more a magenta yeah. sort of pucy sort of colour. Um, and it looks fantastic in the garden. And it's I've, got good foliage I, too. I have another one which is almost up to the gutter of the house. So it's tall, called Bluebird. And it is just gorgeous. Mm. I don't know why I didn't cut it and bring it in, actually. But it was, it was of course, I was in fog and I was in a hurry so I had to get <laughs> to the botanic garden. Yes, exactly, yes. <laughs> yes, that's my excuse sometimes for not bringing something into radio or I didn't think about it until the morning and it's dark. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, let's get to a couple more callers. Uh, first up, we have Mick, who's in Elwood. Good morning, Mick. Good morning. Um, I'm just inquiring about an olive tree. Um, I think it's a Kalamata. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at my parents' property in Elwood. And when I visit, it's uh, the property's on the corner block and I'm pretty sure it's all sandy soil there. Um, and they planted it sort of ad hocly about three or four years ago, probably maybe a bit longer. But it's shot up, it's taken off. Um, but it's quite close to the house and the timber paling fence which is on the corner mm. it's only a metre from the house and I'm just worried about the roots. I wouldn't I, be. No. No. No, the uh, roots It'll won't. push the house down in about 80 or 100 years. <laughs> well, it won't even do no, it then. No, it probably won't. I'm being a bit facetious but um, uh, there's little likelihood the olive tree is going to cause any damage. Uh, I mean, if it's very close to a fence, its trunk may eventually push the fence over as the trunk swells uh, if it's right up against a fence. Um uh, but then I would just take that section of fence out and build the fence around it. Also, I, I had a Hardenbergia on my fence when I lived in Kew, and it destroyed the fence. Mm. Uh, an olive tree won't be nearly as difficult, yeah. say, as just that native climber. Mm. Yeah. So I really wouldn't worry about yeah. it. And the Kalamata olive, although it can grow fairly quickly, is not a 
particularly robust olive in some ways. In fact, I think the Kalamata is often double grafted to get it a decent root system underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, of course, you can prune olives. So there's no reason why you can't cloud prune it or keep it down or turn it into a ball on a stick or whatever to control the actual size of the plant above ground as well? Mm. Yeah, I think what I'm thinking is that there's some concrete, a concrete path and concrete driveway. And when I look at that, it seems to be lifting uh, the concrete pathway. How, how big is the diameter of the trunk on the olive? Uh, it's only... Approximately. Um, approximately, it would be about 10 inches. It's not the olive. Yeah, I'd be surprised if it's the olive. I don't it think the be, trunk's it, been big enough could, yet. It could be next door's tree. Trees travel an awful long way. Mm. Have you got street trees? I mean, I don't know that I'd be blaming the olive. Yeah, mm. there is a big plane tree on the ah. tree. Yeah, the plane tree is far more likely to have lifted yeah. the concrete, I reckon, than the olive. Mm. Oh, uh, yeah. And I have to say, concrete comes very far down my list of priorities as a gardener. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm all for protecting the trees where I can. Yeah. And um, also, in, in summer, a big plane tree does give real shade. Mm. You know, oh, they're a nice look, tree, yeah. You, I, yeah. So, look, I would lift. I, I would live with the lifting concrete uh, and probably not blame the olive tree for it. All right, thank you very much. Can I just ask one more question? Or, sure. No time. No, no, it's fine. Uh, we've, I've got a Tahitian lime in a pot down in Geelong mm. and it's been in the, it, one of those Tuscan uh, self-watering pots but it's been in there for years. Mm. Change it. Give it some new soil. Um, but I want to put it in the ground. Good idea. I would plant it in the ground, but be careful down in Geelong. A lot of the soils are quite alkaline, so you may have to acidify the soil a bit. Yeah. So get some organic material in and maybe even put down some sulphate of iron or something like that because down through that area, some of the citrus trees get very yellow and chlorotic because yeah. it's a bit too limey. So give it some sheep poo. You know those mm. garages that sell sheep poo or cow poo? That will mm. help. Yeah, yeah. so but do I, that. Yeah, but I think it's been in the pot for five years and I'm just worried it's all root-bound. It won't matter too much. Just fluff the outside of the roots out. Don't tamper with them too much because citrus trees don't like their roots tampered with oh, too yeah. much. But just get your fingers in and fluff out the outsides yeah. of the root ball and maybe underneath break away some of the potting mix from underneath the root ball and it should be fine. Do I have to really prune it down hard? No. 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 If you're not fiddling with the root system much, you shouldn't have to prune the top at all, really. Lovely. And give it some seaweed when you plant it. Yeah, good idea. Thank you very much. That's okay. a pleasure, Mick. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Ooh. We've got quite a few callers we coming have. in now. We suddenly. have. Next, we're going to uh, Carol in uh, Emerald. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Um, thanks for your program. I love it. I listen to it every Sunday. Good. Um, I've been given uh, about six pots of dendrobians, yeah. and they're root-bound, or not, not root-bound, pot-bound, and mm. I don't know, um, am I able to put them into the garden under trees, or don't they like it? Dendrobiums, it depends on which ones. Are they the great big sort of Sydney rock orchid ones, or are they the little sort of pink? They're big. They're big, so they're probably the Sydney rock orchid, yep. uh, uh, Dendrobium speciosum or superbum or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my orchid knowledge is a little limited when it comes to some of these plants. Uh, they can go in the ground, but what you'd do is you'd build up a sort of a, a rock uh, outcrop oh, okay. and you'd backfill the rock outcrop with some tree fern fibre or, or uh, pine bark or you know one of those oh, sorts of materials yeah. and then plant them into there. Oh. 
okay. because they're epiphytic or lithophytic in the wild. So they grow on the sides of trees or on the sides of rocks. Oh, okay. So they don't actually want normal garden soil, really. Right, okay. But one of my mum's friends used to plant them all through her garden in mm. Melbourne. She was in, in, oh, where was she? Camberwell, I think. Yeah. It was, so it was quite a sandy, loamy soil. Yeah, well, see, up in Emerald, though, mm. you've got a different climate. Yeah, I think so. your problem will be... Water retention. Yeah. You don't yes. want water retention. It's got to be very free draining. Yeah. And they need oh. lots of light, but I wouldn't put them out where they got the hot blasts of the sun either. No. So okay. so give them as light an area as you can because uh, if they're in too much shade, they might survive, but they probably won't flower oh. well, yeah. especially up at Emerald. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, well, the best of luck with that, Carol, because they are quite handsome things if you can flower them. Yes, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, uh, moving on, we have uh, Robert, who's in Mitcham. Good morning, Robert. Yes, good morning, all. Look, um, seeking, seeking help to uh, hopefully uh, save a little species, Camellia, uh, we've got that uh, suddenly uh, leaves looking very dull, uh, going pale green, a bit brown around the edges, mm. a little, uh, uh, little very dark, uh, dark red flower with a big yellow stamen in it, flowers only about two or three centimetres across. Yeah, it's, it's suddenly looking not well. Uh, well, if it's suddenly not looking well, my gut feeling is wet feet, mm. um, uh, and I would just lift it out of the ground and repot it. Uh, well, it's not, it's not in pots in the ground. That's what I said. I'd lift yep. it out of the ground and I'd repot it. I think it'd be too wet. Uh, yeah, I, my gut feeling is that's the most likely scenario this year uh, that it's getting too wet where it is, uh, and you'll soon know. I mean, if you pop it out of the ground, um, if the ground goes like that, you know it's too wet. Mm. And then I'd pot it up into a pot with some good quality potting mix, give it some seaweed, uh, maybe a little slow-release fertiliser, uh, and see if you can resettle it in the pot again. Right. And, yeah. and then you could put it back in the ground next year, but yeah. in a different spot where it's going to get a bit better drainage. Right. Um, it's, we're on a, on a fair slope. It's fairly yeah, it doesn't matter. There. Your soils out that way would probably be reasonably heavy. Well, they are. They're very heavy clay. Yeah, yes. well, my gut feeling is even on a slope, with the rain we've been getting, uh, if the camellia hasn't been in the ground for years and years and years and so therefore has a broad spreading root system, right. I reckon it's sitting in a puddle of water. It, it certainly has. Well, it, it's been in its present position oh, probably 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, over some fairly dry, dry seasons too, mm. where it's probably been fine, and that's part it, of what I reckon's happened. It's a bit. It's a bit like all my proteas. They were there for years and years and years, right through the drought, as happy as happy, and they've just been committing suicide one by one as we get these mm. wet, wet some winters. Yeah, so I, I definitely lift it out. Uh, I mean, you've got nothing to lose because if you leave it as it is, you're, you're going to lose it. You're probably going to lose it anyway. Okay. If you wanted, you could put it back in. But you would need to add a whole lot of, you know, gritty Good drainage. stuff to make the soil there drain, which means digging a very big hole to get the drainage going. Given the um, the other um, position, we've, we've got a couple of others uh, that are in quite large pots mm. that are also not doing well. Well, again, that might depend on how long they've been in the pots, uh, Robert, so... It might be that they've just been in their pots too long and, and, are, and are getting hungry. And the soil has nothing good good mm. in it anymore. You do need to repot if they're in. Yes, yeah, so well, one certainly uh, we did repot and uh, it uh, didn't come on anyway. Oh. Mm. It go. should. It try should. On that one, try a bit of seaweed because a seaweed will help them come on. 
Yes, we've been dosing with seaweed. Good, good. good. well done. Uh, and the other thing too with things in pots is that you can find that even the pots aren't draining properly, even though they've got drainage holes mm. because there's been so much water. Like I had, I had an African tree that was just sitting in a pot, and when I went and looked at it, it just had water almost sitting on top of it because it was not draining. Yeah, the roots often fill the drainage holes yeah, and, and things I just, like that. And I pulled it out just in time. I'm sure I would have lost it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and one of the big pots, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's raised up on those little... Oh, well, uh, that helps if it's raised up, yes. Little concrete things to mm. uh, uh, let, the, let, let, let it drain, but... Uh, no. Well, anyway, good luck. I would lift it out of the ground. I think you're going to lose it if you don't. All right. Thank you very much for that. That's a pleasure, Robert. Okay. Bye. 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 Right. Uh, next, we have uh, Sue in Mount Evelyn. Good morning, Sue. Hi, Pam. Hi, crew. How are you? We're all well. That's good. I'm sitting here watching, waiting for the fog to disappear so I can get outside today. <laughs> all right. It's hard working full time. Um, I'm going to give Aldi a plug here yeah. um, about two products that I got this year, and Stephen would love one of these. Um, it's a, a, an LED headlight, and Aldi is selling them for $5 with the batteries. And if you like going out, when I get home from work, it's too dark to go and get the herbs and things like this. And you just put it on your head and the light is absolutely <laughs> brilliant and for squashing snails for $5. <laughs> that sn- is cheap and that does sound like quite a useful thing when I have to go out and pick broccoli at 11 yeah. o'clock at night or whatever. A snail, a snail squasher. Yes. Yeah, the other thing they've got too, because I, you know, you go around as a gardener and I've always got a pair of secretaires in the car, in the handbag yep. or whatever, is in their, it's called Adventure Ridge, it's their camping range, a most magnificent foldable stainless steel shovel. So if you have your secretaires, <laughs> your shovel and your headlight in your... <laughs> if you have all those things in your handbag, all your neighbours will get uh, worried that you're going to be ripping off their gardens. How often do you go to someone's house and they say, oh... Do you want a clump of those things? I can't find the the little spade or whatever to dig them out. Doesn't it sound like you're a little too well prepared, though? <laughs> you have to be, Stephen, when people offer you things for nothing. Yeah, true, true enough, but true I, enough. I just thought I'd tell you, because the little shovel was $7, and I oh mean, they sell their things so quickly, and the quality of this little... Um, uh, spade is absolutely fantastic. Actually, that's so, the problem with Aldi because they often have a good product, but it, and it, it disappears. And once it's off the shelf, it doesn't come, come back, back again. That's no. right. Yeah. So you have I to just be quick. I'd tell people that because, especially this LED headlight thing, because when you were, oh, we've got a really good torch, but I'll get halfway up the back garden and it starts flashing and doing terrible things, and I get stuck and can't come back. <laughs> uh, we'll have to send out the SES. So yeah. I've, got, I've got your Hardenbergia white mist in flower all over the garden. Isn't and it beautiful? It is beautiful. Yes, I know. I've, I've actually got it on the, uh, as you come in the driveway, and I was just noticing Fiona's got a big one in the tennis court in flower as well. It is a beautiful plant. It's a and wonderful yet, plant. And at least yep. you didn't call it mini ha-ha or something. <laughs> No, I don't like that plant. <laughs> I can't no. stand the name. <laughs> well, I think as in many uh, Hardenbergy, the only thing I don't like about that plant is it's so susceptible to disease. Oh, dear. And you can have them looking really good and, and they can just up and die, whereas this white mist is... It is um, beautiful. It doesn't but need didn't any mini-ha-ha up and die anyway? 
Sorry? Didn't Minnehaha <laughs> up and die anyway? I, I'd say most of the time. It's a horror. That's not one of our plants, though. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. So. Yeah. I think that, I'm just trying to think where we eventually... It was in Catandra Gardens. Bob O'Neill had it, but I don't know if it was actually a seedling or whose plant that was. Yeah. But White it, Mist is one of yours, isn't it? No. Oh, is it not? No. I thought I got no. that from you. I've yeah, got it all over the place. You did, did you but it's it? not a PBR plant, no. so it's actually called... They call it Edna Walling as well. It's got quite a few different names that people call it. Oh, dear. I think originally it was PBR and, and the people had dropped the PBR on it, so you can get it under various different names. It is so beautiful. Yes. The other thing is, too, the height is great because it only gets to one and a half metres. I've actually got it planted along the whole length of the back fence um, with Comtaniana purple, so you've got the white and the purple, but they both flower at different times. So... The uh, white ones are actually planted on my neighbour's side and I've got the purple on mine. There's the Comtaniana purple flowers later, but it, you just get the, a little bit of a crossover where you get the two together, together. Mm. which is really good. Fantastic, mm. Sue. Okay, well, All thanks right, everybody's going to be down to Aldi. Yes. <laughs> There's going to be a run on Aldi today. Uh, <laughs> a good show too. Good on you. Thanks, okay, Sue. Bye. Yeah, bye. Right, next we have uh, Anna in Coburg. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. Thank you for your fabulous program. I just wanted to say something since we are a garden show and we love your program and love gardens. What they're going to do about that metro project and how they're going to destroy botanic gardens. Well, are they going to destroy the botanic gardens? they're going to cut down some 700 trees. They're not going. Yes, they are. They're not going into the botanic gardens, but they are doing along St Kilda Road. It will be part of St Kilda Road. I right? have to say the the city council is very involved in what they're doing, and the city council have got a very, very, very good attitude to trees. Can you imagine going through all this for the next ten years of upheaval, mm. so that we can all travel underground like some sub- subterranean lizards? Well, you know, it's just appalling, honestly. Why can't they just put more trams and buses and trains and be done with it? But to just to be cutting things down, and mm. it's just it's just incredible. I don't hear anywhere near as enough protests about it. Um, well, they're certainly protesting project. about that uh, sh- that uh, lemon-scented gum at the uh, end of the Tullamarine Freeway yes. as you come onto Flemington Road because they've started chopping it back and there's been people all over the place trying to protect it. Um, and, I mean, it is an iconic tree. I mean, it's really sad that it's it's probably going to go. I think in the end they're going yeah. to win this one. But what I would hope is going to happen is that if they have to take something out like that, uh, for whatever reason, I mean, it was planted by man in the first place, so then we plant more. And one hopes that we will in the future have a whole drift of lemon-scented gums somewhere nearby there uh, for the next generation and the generation after to appreciate them. Because the one thing we've got to remember about trees is that eventually a tree dies anyway. Yeah. So when you've got trees that are well over 100 years old they're getting closer to their potential senescing i mean some trees can live a lot longer but um what, but one of the interesting things but we need I to be planting is, young ones yes and one of the interesting things i think is happening and you're seeing it in melbourne now because we're 200 odd years old trees that live for 500 years in europe clearly are not going to live as long no. here and they're not forming the the rings like they mm. do in europe and that of course is because we they don't stop in yeah. winter we don't have a cold enough winter for them to stop in but I have to say one thing that does um, make me feel a bit hopeful 
is that the Melbourne City Council is taking trees really seriously. Mm. They want to turn Melbourne into the first urban forest. Mm. And they're really thinking, because a lot of the trees that we've got planted around are trees that are called riparian. They should actually be planted near water. And they haven't been. They've been planted in a city. Mm. And what they're doing is they're replacing trees with trees with 100... And they're doing this in the Botanic Gardens as well, with 100-year in mind. So they're taking into account the change in the climate and they're planting trees that they think will do us proud as we get hotter. And and I do think it's important that mm. uh, that this council, the Melbourne City Council, has got a really, really excellent tree man there all the time trying to work out oh, we've lost, how we've to lost take Adam. Melbourne forward. Yeah, and look, it is sad, and but at times... I'm not actually happy about this lemon-scented gum going, don't get me wrong. I'm really upset about it because it is an iconic and beautiful tree. Um, but if at some stage we have to remove a tree, whether it's man-planted or whether it's a natural tree, I mean, even more horrifying, I think, in some ways, is I've been going up and down to Bendigo a lot recently to do radio with the ABC up there, and they're widening the freeway on the way to Bendigo, and they've taken out huge piles of beautiful old trees. Mm. Um Big old river red gums and things. Oh, goodness. I, so. I also I – I have trouble when they're taking trees out for the sake of roads. When they take mm. trees out for the sake of rail, I feel, yes, yeah. we're taking that tree out because we're going to be moving people in lots of 100 and lots of 200 yeah. at a time. But when we take it out for yet another road, I'm not as happy. No. So Bendigo, yeah. it seems to me... Mm. It's awful. Uh, but, you know, I, I still don't like to see the end of this beautiful gum because no, it well, is it's an going iconic... For, it's going for a road too. Yeah, and it is going for a road. But if they plant back, I mean, if people actually understand that we're going to plant for posterity after we have to destroy something, then I can live with it a bit, even though it hurts. Mm. Uh, because I know that they're going to plant trees back that in another 150 years' time, they'll still be there for people to enjoy. And I think that's the important thing long term. It's not the individual that matters. It's what they do after it mm. that matters. If they're just mm. going to turn it into a concrete jungle, then, yeah, I'd be all for tying myself up to the tree. Um, but um, if they are going to replant, then I don't feel so bad. Mm. Mm. What they should do is actually get the uh, the plans and start that planting now. Absolutely. And they should consult with the public. I mean, if they explain to the public that this is, in fact, what they intend doing because they're going to lose that tree and it's terrible and it's iconic and, and it was on the National Tree Register as far as I know. Um, they have done that with that tree. They, they claim that they have tried everything they can do to save it, but yeah. it, it, the road problem there is enormous. Yeah. Get rid of the car is my answer. I think Pam's <laughs> point's valid too. They've got to work. To, you've got to work to a ten-year, twenty-year plan. Yeah, yeah. And, and you need that succession to be, to be started. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in fact, we've been living off what our uh, ancestors did. Uh, for 150 years now when they did huge tree plantings. Mm. And up until comparatively recently, we haven't been doing it to mm. any extent. That's so true. So we haven't got that successional planting happening. That's and true. I think that's really important because trees will die of old age. Mm. And if we're not planting now, mm. uh, then there will come a point in Melbourne's history and where oodles of trees have to come out. And, of course, the other thing is that we are, we are having much wilder storms in summer with global yeah. warming, which is going to damage trees more as well. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, but I do think you have to give Melbourne City Council its due and, of course, the Botanic Gardens are very much... Well, they're very I mean, proactive. They, they didn't stop. They have been replanting yeah. trees. Yes, they've, they've been very good mm. about that. Mm. And, and some of the other um, parks around Melbourne, I know they've been really looking into mm. this as well and, in the and last couple of years. 
and planting the correct tree for the future. So when people start screaming, oh, you've got to replant the same tree. Well, if the tree wasn't really in the first place appropriate Mm. for that area. Yeah. And the other thing is plane trees. We have too many plane trees Mm. in Melbourne and they have to start, you know, just having more variety if you have... You only need one major disease to get in. Yes, exactly. And, yes, these monocultures can be Mm, a serious problem. A real problem. And you do find that sort of, oh, it's historically what was there, let's put it back again attitude a lot. Um, And I have to say the National Trust can be as much to blame about this as anybody. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with some National Trust representatives about a garden on Mount Macedon years ago that has an elm driveway. Now, some of those elms, well, all those elms are 130 years old. Some of them have only got trunks on them with about a a foot in caliper. So the trees have obviously never done well. Mm. I mean, they're the same age as the ones in the Fitzroy Gardens and they're a fraction of the size. Mm. So elm was the wrong choice. Yep. And some of them have died. Some of them are senescing. Some of them will be dead soon. Uh, And we had this discussion and they said, well, you take out every second one and replant with more elms. And I said, well, the elms didn't work the first time. Why would we want to do that? And wouldn't you take the opportunity to plant something that would be in keeping with the garden, but perhaps something unique to the garden that nobody else has thought of to plant? Although in the – I mean, I agree Mm. with you because obviously they didn't do well, but we must remember that Melbourne is the last city in the world Mm. with stands of elms. Oh, yes, yes. I'm not not putting Mm. it down on elms. Mm. But what I'm saying is the elms here didn't work yes. uh, for whatever reason, whether it was too high an altitude because it was right up on top of Mount Macedon or whether the soil type wasn't quite right for them or whatever, I don't know. But very few of those elm trees have ever flourished. And so I suggested a different tree altogether that I thought would flourish up on Mount Macedon but would give a similar canopy to which, it. Which was? Which was the Japanese Kadzura tree. Oh, yes. filament. There's a beautiful one of those in the gardens. It's yes. a gorgeous tree and it would mm. grow really well at Mount Macedon. Uh, and the National Trust representatives were horrified because it wasn't authentic and it wasn't available in the year the garden was planted. But it would have given the right look. Mm. And that's what I would have would and, do. And if whoever planted that garden had had the chance of it, no doubt. He or oh, she would have taken it. Mount Macedon actually is a repository of a lot of really important botanical stuff because people were collectors, so they grabbed everything they could get mm. to put into their garden. So if it had been available, they'd have used it. Mm. In fact, 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, I planted a metasequoia in that garden mm-hmm. and the National Trust said it should come out because they were only discovered in 1945. Oh, how ridiculous. But it's appropriate to the garden. And also, metasequoias have been planted all over the world because they are so stunningly beautiful. It is, and this metasequoia is now getting to be a serious tree, which means I must be getting old. <laughs> <laughs> Frighteningly. That's right. Uh, so it's a bit of a worry, but anyhow, is so... It, is it still there, Stephen? Yes, they have. You won the day. Well, I think I have. <laughs> I, I don't think the, the trust that runs the garden up there, it's not the National Trust, it's a private trust that owns this garden at Mount Macedon. I think they're taking some of it just on board and listening but not doing everything, which is probably a good way of doing it. The National Trust will have some good ideas, and, yes, you run with those, uh, but some of the other things you you say, well, this particular property and that particular asset or plant or whatever it be is part of the garden's history, even if it's not original history. And so things have to move on. Mm. You've just got to accept that. We'll go to our next caller, and we have Ken in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. I just wanted to say I got quite excited listening to um, uh, we can replace these trees with what's indigenous to that area. And I know we've got to have other plants from other areas and other countries, but I think because we're in a problem where our plants are becoming extinct... That's the sort of thing we should be doing. That is definitely something... I'm sure you agree me. I hope you do. I think it definitely... And we should be thinking about planting to 
to make the birds happy. Mm. You know, one yeah. of the things we don't do is plant enough. I've got, I've got, I'm starting to plant, and I've been doing it for a while. What's indigenous to this area, and the birds that I've at the daytime, you, I can't hear my wife. I can only hear the birds. Oh, there's an plant. advantage. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, of course, too, is actually planting for the insects mm. because exactly. we forget about the insects, mm. and and it's very. Mm. I mean, plant plant for the insects and we then get the birds. You see some very good examples of this along places like Merry Creek where they very self-consciously have been planting. Mm. And there's one piece of the Botanic Gardens called Long Island where they've replanted what was their pre-white settlement and it's increased the bird population in the garden enormously. Yes, mm. yes. Yeah. No, it's certainly worth looking at. The only issue I have with Indigenous is it's, if it's on streetscapes and things, they've also got to have a tree that's suitable for a streetscape tree. So sometimes you've got to make allowances because you may well not have a a local indigenous plant that has the sort of character or shape that is appropriate for a streetscape. So you've got to... You've got to sort of balance all of the things up. So, uh, I mean, those those we've been talking about the lemon-scented gums. Well, they're obviously not indigenous eucalypts mm. to our area, but they do very well in Melbourne. Yeah. They've done they're iconic trees in it's certain parts of the city. Stunning trees. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, they're not local endemic natives. They're natives, but they're not local endemic natives. Uh, but they have a certain characteristic that makes them really worthwhile. What I'd like to see is a lot more understory stuff planted because what we are losing in Melbourne, I think, are the small birds. We yeah. don't have we don't have enough... The, the scrubby stuff. Yes, mm. enough of the scrubby stuff that will make the small birds and the insects happy. Mm. Exactly. Mm. And anyway, thanks very much again for your wonderful program. You do extremely well every week and you're... Thank You're you very all much. And all, all very, very professional. Thanks very much. That's Good a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. For anybody who's interested, I'm doing a walk next um, Thursday at 2 p.m. in the gardens. So if anyone's free, come along to our walk. We do free walks every day at 10.30 and 2 o'clock, every day except Monday, and there's always a guide there to take you. And it's a great idea. It is. You it's get a an wonderful. insight into the gardens that you'd never get just meandering mm. around Absolutely. on your own. Absolutely. So, and and because they're free, they're extra good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when was that again? Next Thursday at two p.m. Thursday the fourteenth. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, Stephen, we've just got time to oh. um, talk about a plant before right. we have to go. I'll talk about one that might get people sort of enraged a wee bit, uh, and seeing it's nearly the end of the program, they can't get in. Um, <laughs> Excited. Yeah. Um, this is a bamboo. Uh, and people are always a little frightened of bamboos. This is one of the Japanese bamboos called Sasavichii. Now, Sasavichii is a running bamboo, but it runs fairly shallowly under the ground, so it's comparatively easy to control. How can you talk about a running bamboo? You, well, because it has a certain purpose in life that's really good. It will grow really well in dry shade under big trees. Ah. And because it looks like it's variegated, but in fact it's parchment edges are actually dead tissue. So it's leaves as they get older, the edges of the leaves die. And when you see this plant growing in dark shade, uh, it looks like this wonderful variegated white and green thing when in fact it's the parchment dead edges of the leaves that look like they're variegated. It only grows to about a metre tall. Uh, So it's quite short, so it makes fantastic ground colour. And in dry shade under a big tree, in amongst the tree roots, it's... Its wayward it's characteristics are somewhat curtailed, so it doesn't take off in dry shade like Will it would. Will it grow under a pine tree? I reckon it even grow under a pine tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've planted it under things like um, big old Morton Bay figs. Uh, it certainly grows well under eucalypts. I've grown it under eucalypt trees. Uh, so I've grown it in some fairly difficult spots. And I have a client who's got a house just 
around the corner from the Botanic Gardens, um, and he's got huge big trees in his garden. He's got huge big street trees out the front. The garden is in permanent gloom, and he's planted one of these just inside his front gate. And it's got sort of concrete paths around it, so it controls where the bamboo can move anyway. And it just lightens up the whole area. It just looks gorgeous. So Sasavicii, it's a running bamboo, so you do have to be careful how you use it. It would be actually very useful to colonise clay banks and things too, where you want to sort of stabilise soil. I wouldn't plant it at my place. Coward. Um, (laughs) But I have paddocks next to me. Yeah, well, it won't get out in the paddocks. It's seeding things that you've got to worry about, not running things, and the cattle would eat it anyway. Um, So, uh, or the llamas or whatever's in the paddock next door. (laughs) Um, So... I think it's a good plant, but, you know, any running bamboo has to be planted with discretion and you've got to remember to control it and have, you know, some ways of of dealing with it. But if you're looking for something that in that really difficult dry shade areas where nothing will grow... And I have to say you're right about the the variegation because in that darkness, if you've got something that's got something that's a bit white or cream, Mm. it really does lift. Well, I don't know whether it's still there, but there was a clump of this growing in the bot gardens down in their bamboo collection um, and it was down in really shady spot. They obviously had a root barrier around it Mm. and... um, it looks stunning. Right. I must, so, I, yeah, it must be worth I going. I will go and have a look. Yeah, go and see if it's still there. Cause I there's... walked through some of the bamboo yesterday mm. and there was a sign up saying, Bamboo shooting, please be careful. Oh, yes, because you don't want to walk into the bamboo gardens and um, crush off the new shoots yes. coming up. And I was wondering if people were stealing them to eat. Well, they could be. Mm. Some of the bamboos are quite edible. These wouldn't be because these little tiny growing bamboos don't have shoots of any merit. But it's a, I think it's a great plant. And, I mean, it would make a good tub specimen. And the only management issue, apart from making sure it doesn't spread further than you want, is the dead edges get deader and deader as the plant goes on. So about every second year at the end of winter, you just slice the whole plant off at ground level and it'll all come up with fresh green foliage without the parchment edges to start with and then it'll all settle down and do it again. So about every two years you cut it off at ground level. Right. Um, and that just freshens the whole plant up again. And I think Sasavicii is a fantastic plant. And, yes, it's a running bamboo. So what more can I say? <laughs> you said it all. Yeah, and, and it is getting too late for somebody to ring in and tell me off. <laughs> so that will happen getting, next time I come in. It's getting so late that we're going to have to finish for another year. Oh, another <laughs> year. Another, it feels another like week. today. Yeah, another another week. seven days. Yes. <laughs> That's what happens when you get up in the dark. It does feel like another year. <laughs> But anyway, of course, we will be back at 7.30 next week. Um, A big thank you to Jenny, who again has been handling all the phone calls. And uh, we will see you in two weeks' time, Stephen. Yes, I'll be down again in a fortnight with a whole range of new plants to talk about, undoubtedly. Excellent. Okay, until next week, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.